there's um, there are there are some spiritual laws that are I believe eternal laws and they're they're more sure than than the physical laws of the world they're more sure than gravity like in 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 the Christian worldview, right, like there's going to come a time and a place when the elements melt with fervent heat and everything gets changed in creation. And so the world that we all live in, you know, that you get out of bed and your feet go to the floor and all these things, these things that we build our lives out of that we think are very, very permanent and very, very durable aren't actually in a certain way of thinking of that. But there are spiritual laws that the scriptures talk about that are more durable than the physical world that we live in. And it's interesting to think of those things and what all they're tied together with. For example, one of them would be the law of sowing and reaping. Like that's an eternal principle. What you sow, that you reap. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, that whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. That there's an eternal principle about receiving what you give or harvesting what you sow. And it's connected to a lot of like secondary principles. So like um, seed time and harvest or I tell you, brethren, it's, does, does a fig tree bear olive berries? Like, these, are, these spiritual laws are used, like, to teach us things about what God's doing in the world and in his people. Another one would be, like, uh, the Shema. I, the Lord your God, am one God. And so all these principles, these, these, these um, conclusions from that law are about the unity of the faith. And so we can say things like, there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord over us all. Like this principle of unity is tied into this law of one God, the creator. The resurrection would be another one. And Jesus uses this one, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abideth alone. That death and rebirth, like going into the ground, like giving up, like losing, dying, and being remade into something bigger and greater than was, is a consequence of that principle of the resurrection, that law of the resurrection. I want to talk about another one of these, and I want to focus on it tonight. And I'd like to call this message, Start Small, a Universal Principle. And it comes from a passage that we'll, we'll look at. Why don't we turn there, actually, in Luke chapter 16. Uh, no, no, let's not start there. Let's start in Mark chapter 12. As a, as a principle that we can derive from this law, let's look at Mark 12. And towards the end of the chapter, in verse 38, we find this, this story. It starts with 38, And he said unto them, in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, 
which devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers, these shall receive greater damnation. So all this show, all this pomp, all this vainglory, and at the bottom of all that show are men who devour widows' houses. And then we flip the narrative. In verse 41, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. There's that same show and ostentation. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So here we see this principle in effect that something very, very small has much greater consequence. I don't know if you're interested in it. I was curious, so I looked up some, just some numbers to put together with this. Uh, a mite, uh, I just looked it up real quick before I came over here. A mite is 1 64th of a denarius, which a denarius was a day's wage. In 2020, December 2020, a day's hourly wage was $29.81. That's the national average in the U.S. By today's money, a mite was $3.72. So she cast in, in our terms, she put in about $7 in the treasury. That's what, that's what it was to us. That's what it looked like. Seven bucks, two cups of coffee is what she cast in. And that was worth more to God and the temple and Jesus than all of those, all that show. The small things matter. Jesus has this kind of point of, of highlighting small things over and over again. You can probably think of several examples that, that we won't even talk about tonight. I mean, leaven, a measure of leaven is a small thing and it becomes big. The, um, the, the faith is a grain of mustard seed is a very small thing that has very large impact in the world. This, this notion of smallness is repeated. I, I, I think it's proper to call it a theme of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. Let's flip over to that passage I mentioned before, Luke, Luke 16. In Luke 16, this is the parable of the, of the, of the bad steward. And, you know, he has, he's, he's told to give an account. And because he's losing the stewardship and he knew that he had done poorly, so he called his master's debtors and he forgave them so that he could have good favor with them and and we'll pick it up in in verse 9 and I say unto you make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness that when you fail they may receive you into everlasting habita habitations he that is faithful this is the verse I want to focus on he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. 
If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own's? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And this is one of those passages that I would that I always look at as being so very counterintuitive, like it's an unnatural premise, because we think of, like we're raised to think in this world of like little things and big things, and little things have small consequences and big things have big consequences, and we keep the two separated. Like we talk about white lies, right? Like that's a lie that doesn't hurt anybody. It's not that big of a deal. But this is, Jesus is flipping that on the head. He's saying, if you can't tell the truth about little things, you'll lie about big things. And it throws our natural order upside down. That it's training us. Jesus is training his people. I want you to focus on the little things. I want you to focus on the small things. Whenever I, I, I know it, I feel it in my own flesh, there's this natural inclination to say, to, to excuse my minor indiscretions, my minor failures, my minor weaknesses because I don't do bad things, big bad things. And it's rampant throughout the whole world. If you talk to people at the gospel on the streets, they'll tell you, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not one of those bad people. And they don't know how to follow this principle that Jesus is teaching us that the little things matter. It's the little things that matter. And so the immediate lesson is focus on the little things. The little things in your life, that's where, you, that's where you stand or fall. That's where you succeed or you fail. The little things. And it's so hard to train your mind to think differently than you, than, than you do in your natural man. It's so hard to focus on the little things instead of the big things. But that's exactly what we should be doing. These little things repeat and echo throughout the New Testament. My father works and hitherto I work. He's doing what's right there in front of him. Jesus isn't going to, he's not even going to those outside of Israel. You know, he's right here. What's right here, right in front of you. This is where you work. This is what you do. He's not, um, Mormon doctrines the contrary. He's not focused on North America. He's not in other places. He's right there in Palestine with the people who are right with him. That's where his work is. That's where his focus is. That's where his drive is. That's where he sees God working, and that's what he does. How many people were sick in the world when Jesus was, there, was here? Uh, 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 who, who can tell? Who does he heal? He heals the people that are with him, the people that are in front of him, the people that are near. He says at one point, he says, if you hear, lo, I'm here, lo, I'm there, don't, don't chase after those things. And he says, the, for I tell you, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not out there. It's not out there. It's right here among you, with you in you, here, small, present. And this is, this is so much of, of how 
people often think about church work, right? It's like, how, how big of an impact can we ha- How big of an impact can we make? How many people can we witness to? How many people can we baptize? How many? It's so much the wrong approach, brothers and sisters. It's completely backwards. Figure out how to work with one person right in front of you. You want to be fantastic with the gospel? You want to be dynamic? You want to be meaningful to the kingdom? Find a person right here and work with them well. That's what God will use, just like he did in Jesus' life. I don't need any of you, I don't need any of us to be focused on making a thousand converts in the next 10 years, you find one or two people right in your midst, right here, right now, that you have access to, that you can think of in the front of your mind as I'm talking now, that's where you become great with the gospel. That's where you focus. And that's where you learn. It's the small things. Hebrews says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Those are big things, right? Love. How big of a definition can you make of love? And good works. How many things does that encompass? Semicolon. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You want to learn love? You want to learn to do good works? Be present with God's people. That's where you learn it. But exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Assembling ourselves together, what, is it, what does that mean? I, it's so easy to read that over and I think I read that passage a thousand times in my life and, and, and because of how I grew up in the church, I just think of like going to church. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together is going to church. And it's such a shallow view of what that means. I thought, I thought when I was reading this tonight, assembling ourselves together, where, 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 do we, where do we learn about assembling ourselves together? Well, I thought of Corinthians. I thought of Corinthians in, in the second half of the 11th chapter. It says, when ye come together, my brethren, that moment where they're supposed to be present at the Lord's table, observing the body of Christ, knowing all that that's going on there and all the significance of what's happening with the Eucharist, with the Lord's Supper, that's what he's referring to. That's what it means to be gathered together. That's the place where we learn love and exhortation and how to do good works. I want to... I want to make a case, and it's a little bit complicated. So I want you to, I want you to try to, I want you to stay with me here. We've talked before. Finney, I, Finney gave a citywide one time where he drew a picture on this board of the fountain and like these kind of this idea of nested relationships. I don't know if you remember that or if you were here, but there's another way. I want to talk about that same idea, but I want to use a different. Um, a different graphic representation. I think that we can think about think about small things starting at the center. We can think about that same that same diagram that Finney 
draws with the fountain and out of this flows into this, flows into this, flows into this. We can do that same kind of idea, but we can think about concentric circles. And as we lay out these concentric circles, this first little place is the individual. It's the center. It's the smallest. It's just you. It's just you in your prayer closet. It's just you in the mirror. It's just you with your head on your pillow at night. It's just you when you wake up. It's just you. It's just you. The, the, the you that's going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The you that stands alone. The you that only you are. That's the, that's the smallest piece of individuality. That's the smallest piece of identity. And we can talk about what those things are. This, this, this small piece of individuality, this is, where we, this is where we walk with God. Right? This is where we have faith. Nobody can have, you know, this has to come from the center. This is where we have integrity. I mean, those things get played out in our life, but where they reside, where they live, where they are, is just with you. It's the part of you that only you really know. This is the secret self, the things that I don't know about you, that maybe nobody knows about you, the, the thing that just is with you. This is thoughts and intents of the heart. Your own motivations, your own desires, your own drives. This is where sin and repentance is. This is where discipline is. And this is where, really, where worship is. Okay. So this is the small place. And then our next our next ring this is um, this is family, spouse and family. This is where people, this is the next closest world. Like where these things first make their entrance and appearance and they manifest what's really here. It's the closest thing to self. Is the people that you live with, uh, your spouse, your children, the ones that you can't hide from, the ones that you never get away from, the ones that see when you're upset, they see when you're sad, they see when you succeed, they see when you fail, they see all those things. This is why we have requirements for them to, to lead the house of God. Because those things are obvious and manifest to those people who are there. And then, as you can expect, we have our, 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 our community. This is our, our church life, our, 
This is the, the people that we choose to align ourselves with. This is where communion, correction, doctrine, praxis, those are like, we start here, we start with faith, integrity, discipline, sin, repentance, and it works its way out towards our church life. And then, I, I, normally this, this analysis stops here, but I want to go past this. And, and the next category I would call, it's kind of a funky <coughs> title, but ideological Affiliates. This is people that we share common ideas with. And this is a lot of overlapping circles because they kind of bob and weave. Like, there's people in different categories of alignment. Like, a, like maybe, maybe this group, you know, they dip way in here. We have a lot of disagreement here. We have more or less relative agreement here. And there's they're close here, and all these overlapping layers of people that we can share common ideas with. And outside of that layer, we have a whole other one, and this one is a very big circle that's the Brotherhood of Man. This is where the divine image resides. This is why we, and, and I'm, because we're, these are concentric, like we find ourselves all a part of this. Like I'm a part of humanity. Like there's something in common with me and every man. It's this image bearer potential. It's, you know, this is the root of our ideology. It's one of the roots of our ideologies around non-resistance is that all of us are the image of God and you can't hate and destroy the image of God. And that recognition puts me in a category with all these people. And then outside of this, there's an even bigger one that's the creation. Or the cosmos. Because all of these things, they owe their existence to the one. Now, that's not that complicated. I think anybody can understand that. But what I think is complicated is that I, would, I think that there's something in modernity, something in where the world is now that causes people, rather than rooting their identity here, to start with their identity here. And, and here's, here's where this comes from. Let me try to articulate why I think this. The biggest question of the age, who am I? Why am I? What am I? These like existential, the, the postmodern world is full of this like existential angst and confusion. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to, and you see, I see in the world around me all this confusion and, and struggle and trauma, like these notions that you hear, you know, popular astrophysicists saying things like, we're all stardust. They're starting in the cosmos to find their sense of identity. It starts way out here in the broadest strokes 
I'm a part of the cosmos, I'm a human, and then I'm, I'm working my way. And the modern way of viewing identity starts in the farthest ring and peers down into a hole to try to find what's at the center. And, and the modern is, is striving and struggling to figure out what's at the bottom of the well. Who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What is this life? And I think that that's a, I think that that's a construct of modernity. And I don't, I don't, there are some merits to it. I'm not, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm distinguishing modernity from an ancient worldview because we're biblical people. But I, I, I don't mean that nostalgically. It's not like I think that everything in the ancient world was great. I just think that there's a different worldview. Because if you're in the ancient worldview, you know who you are. You may not know anything else, but you know who you are. You're this little person in this little place with this little wife and this little family on this little piece of land in this little, this little countryside. And that may be all the world that you know. And what's out here is completely vague and unknown. And the, the ancient mind is reaching and striving and stretching to figure out what's out there. What's out there? They look at the stars at night and they say, what is this cosmos? But they don't ask, what am I? They know what they are. They're a man. Does this matter? Is, this just a, is it just a concept of modernity? Does it matter? I think it does. I think it does because of this principle that we've been talking about. I think that starting small, that you create stability right here, and this is the thing that matters most. No matter what else is in your life, if you don't start with your individual self, your individual faith, your individual repentance, your individual connection with God, you have to start with you. And once that has some footing and firmness, then you can start to create family. And then you can start to create community. And then you can start to affect on and on. This, 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 this way of looking at things, this way of looking at identity, in the modern construct, we start from the ethereal, the least practical. The cosmos, the, uh, the we are all made of stardust idea. And you try to find some peace and comfort and solace in that. I don't, I don't know how, but that's the attempt. Try to find some comfort and solace in the idea that we're all stardust that your atoms were in the dinosaurs, or in the, in the Big Bang, or in the whatever, some kind of continuity with the broader universe around you. And, there, and you start from the biggest possible concept that you, can, that you can find. And that's supposed to create some meaning that will create humanity, that will create some sense of community. And I, it looks bankrupt to me. It looks like a losing game. I don't see people applying that methodology and finding wholeness and health and life and peace and rest and joy.
But I think God wants us to start in the real, at the center, at the small, and find our way out. You know, I've I thought so many times about, about Jehovah's self-description with Moses. The claim that he is the I am. And that's, that's, a, that's a really quizzical thing to say. It's hard to know exactly what to make of of Jehovah's disclosure of himself. Who should I say sent me? I am that I am. That's when you, when you get to the most reductionist view, like the one sentence expression of who Jehovah is, it's I am. And I think that it begs the question, who are you? I am a man. I am Matthew. I am a person. And this notion of beginning with the beginning, beginning with the center, beginning with the self, and starting with the small, and reconciling those things, and working through who I am, who I am as a man, is where we should begin. The modern man knows the cosmos much better, but he knows himself much less. He knows about redshift in the stars. He knows about an expanding universe. He knows astrophysics. He knows so many, 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 many things. But he doesn't know himself. And the man who knows himself is so much further ahead. We'll get to that again. I think that there are... So that's kind of like a psychosocial version of identity. I think that there's also spiritual versions of this same paradigm. I don't know how many people I've talked to who have told me over the years that I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. In the biggest, broadest sense, I'm making some claim to some vague ether that's bigger than me. Way out here in the cosmic sense, there's something spiritual happening that I don't know about. And from that perspective of spirituality, then I try to peer down the well and figure out, well, is there something true about Christianity? Is there something true about Islam? Is there something true about Hinduism? Is there something true about Buddhism? Is there something true? And I try to collect, I try to collect and amass some way of making some sense out of what it means to be spiritual. That's the spiritualist. And there's all kinds of manifestations, there's all kinds of like iterations of that same kind of idea. 
You know, there's the buffet eaters. They take, it's the same kind of concept, but maybe it gets in a narrower circle. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's within the, in the world, Christian worldview now. I like a little bit of this, and I like a little bit of that, and I like a little bit of this. And I make my own plate. I, I, I'm starting with all these big ideas around me. It's not creating something that I have to work through and I have to struggle with and I have to find my own path to repentance and grace and faith and just picking little things up from here and there. But those things, when you, when you apply that approach, you, don't, you can't create a community out of that. And it's awfully hard to create a family out of that. I had a friend... I had a friend who wasn't in the faith and he called me and he was telling me about some difficulties in his family and his marriage. And he said, it's so much easier for you, Matthew, because you and your wife, you have something that you agree on. You have a rule book, like you have something to go off of. You have a premise that you both believe in that you you think is bigger than you and you can appeal to that with each other and make some kind of order and sense out of the problems that you have. That's an awfully astute observation. And it's because we start at the center. So all of this, it leads me to ask, it begs the question, how are you building your identity? Do you know who you are? Obviously, I don't mean do you know your name. I mean, what is your identity built out of? Are you looking down to find you? Are you looking from a place where you know who you are up to find God? Here's another reason why this is a very important principle, I think. When you start with you, when my, when my initial premise, my first question is, who am I? Like, I'm not trying to figure out the cosmos. I'm not trying to figure out the spirit realm. I'm not trying to figure out the great mysteries. I'm trying to figure out who I am. Well, this is where, this is where, when you ask this question, you see ugly stuff that you don't like. All the times that I've talked about the gospel, the one thing I've almost never had to try to convince anybody of is that they were broken. Because any amount of self-awareness, any amount of honest approach to who am I reveals things here that are not right. And, and that's why it's the initial premise. If I find things in me that are broken, if I find things that are not right, if there are things here that I don't like, I can divert myself by asking about the cosmos. I can divert myself by pursuing any wind that blows by. I can, I can try to remedy those things with 
frequencies and crystals and, and meditations and connecting to the great spirit or anything else, million distractions from getting to the place where I just honestly look at me. Just me. And the, the cleansing of that, the fixing, when you, when you figure out how to make that different, then you've started on a quest to discover the cosmos. Piece by piece by piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And somewhere out here you end up like Paul, reveling in mysteries that you don't even know if you're in the flesh or the spirit. Now that's way out there. It starts with self. Symptoms of a big picture approach, symptoms of starting big is that you have an external focus with internal conflict. Starting out here and peering into the well, you, you have all kinds of ideas about what this is. Like this is where your focus is. And this is an awful lot to take in. It's far too much for a person to really understand. And so you get a little slice of this and a little slice of this. Whatever this is, however you're putting together your picture of the cosmos, whether this is materialism or spiritualism or whatever the big picture approach is, you get these little tiny slices and, that, and they're, they, they feel confirmatory, they feel big, they feel interesting, they feel, you know, expanding. But they don't, the, the external view is very big, but because this is all still a wreck and you haven't started here, this person finds all kinds of internal turmoil in his own soul, in his immediate relationships, and in his community, and on and on it goes. Either, either peace is reverberating out of this center, or chaos is. External focus with internal conflict is, a, is an example, a, a, a symptom. Another symptom of this external view is to have um, ever-increasing ideas with ever-decreasing influence and connection. I know many people like this in my life. Um, one friend I have, he's been, he's been a part of all three of the Abrahamic faiths. He's explored Judaism seriously. He's explored Islam seriously. He's lived with Mennonites and explored Christianity seriously. And uh, he was a Krishna, like he's been all over the place and he's a huge, like he's a big picture person. And he sees these little slices of, of knowledge, of wisdom, of truths, and, and he's ever spinning around this like pool of chaos. And the more, the bigger his mind gets, the smaller his life gets. And his relationships are broken, and his connections are broken, and his self is broken. And I talked to him, 
And he's always got big ideas to share with me and an ever smaller life. There's also symptoms of starting small. We can observe what it means to start at the center and to start small. And one of those symptoms is that relationships grow into networks. And relationships grow into networks because relationships, like they become fast, they become secure, they become stable. And then you begin to, ex then, then your relationships grow to the extent because they're stable at the root. And like the people that are close to me, I'm very close to, we have a lot of trust. We have a lot of, we have a lot of fluidity in our relationship. We have a lot of mutual support. There's a lot of confidence. And that stability causes us to have influence, not just from myself, but from us together. And those, those core relationships, those very close-knit people that I'm sharing my life with, that we're trusting and loving and, and growing together, those things become a network because it's not just me and what I can touch in the world, it's what we and what we can touch in the world. And I know 50 people and you know 50 people and he knows 50 people and she knows 50 people and together we know thousands of people. And committed relationships at the center allow things, just like, just like the neurons in our mind, they allow things to move back and forth. And it doesn't get broken up. There's a, there's a steady base for things to move across. So resources can move, ideas can move, contacts can move. All this, it creates, it turns relationships into networks. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to be rooted in uh, as a node with a group of people that you're very close to and in love with that's a part of a bigger network and this is an idea of the church it's why the church is what it is it's why the church is universal it's why the church can cross borders and cross time and cross all these barriers another uh another symptom of starting small of starting at the center is that your influence corresponds with your mastery. So, so when you start at the center and you start on working on yourself, and then as you work on yourself, you start developing familial relationships that are, that are increasingly stable because you're increasingly stable. And you as a family, you start creating relationships within community. And the community becomes better for your family being there. And that causes everybody to appreciate you and you appreciate them and you learn relationship skills. You have the space in your life to focus on, on your, own, your own gifts and ministries and abilities. You have space and support and resource to be able to do that. And so you become better and better at the things that God made you to be and that causes your influence to grow. But it's not influence from exposure. It's not like social media influence. It's not just that you can be seen. It's that you have something to offer. It's that you've grown and you've learned and you know things and you know how to do things and you're exercised and you're skilled. And because you have something to offer, people want to know what you can teach, what you can do, what you can provide. And your influence grows with mastery. You have something to contribute, something to bring, something to offer. This is why we do evangelism the way we do in our churches. How do we do evangelism? We want to find some way to provide 
a, 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 an asset to the communities where we live. We want to do something good for the people around us. That's, that's the root of the church's evangelism. Provide something for the place where you live. Make people glad that you are there. That's step number one for a growing church. Make people glad you all live in their neighborhood. And because you're providing, because you're not a taker, you're a giver. I, so many concepts about Christianity in America are taking, like the offering plate, the, the legislative appeals, the tax exemption, the on and on it goes. Like our people are seen in our country as net takers. And we have, to we have to reverse that concept. Where we are, we need to be givers. We need to be providing something for the people who live around us so that they care that we're there. And once they care that we're there, then we can start connecting to people. Not as leeches, not as takers, but as givers. And people, as listeners. And people want that in their lives. And out of that place... Out of that kind of relationship, then we start to talk about the principles of the scripture that make us that way. And that's what brings people into the faith. This is the corporate process of evangelism for the church. This way of viewing identity creates stability at its core. Because you've started with your own internal resources, you've made a strong family resource, you're making a stronger community resource, and that's contributing to the broader world around you, and this is very stable. And one symptom of people who have started small and grown in their lives is that they have people close to them who they have been through rocky, difficult, adversity with. Finney started saying several years ago, he said there's two ways to get to know people. Pray with them or go through adversity with them. And people that have started small have navigated complex difficulties and kept people around. Because of their stability, because of their internal resource, because of their faith in these things, because starting small and knowing who they are, knowing what they are, they've been through disagreements and problems and trials and money problems and environmental problems and physical problems and kept people around. Can you grab me a paper towel right above the sink in there? Okay. Let's, let's talk about some practical things we can do to start small. How do you start small? Do you see him, Lazarus? They're right there in the, inside the door to the left. A little hand-washing sink.
Thank you. Well, it's not like dealing with force. I think you guys are going to have to take notes or listen well. Yeah. small with this whiteboard. Okay. How do we start small? Thank you, sis. Well, it starts about where you expect. With yourself. These are, uh, you could, you could make a dozen versions of that. Oh, hey, thank you, Elisha. That's perfect. Good job, son. What I want you to do if you, if you want to start small is hone the skill of self-criticism. Now, I have to provide some caveats here. There are some people who have very unhealthy versions of self-criticism. They beat themselves up. These are coming from unhealthy attitudes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about self-critique. I'm talking about, in the, in, the, in the clearest terms, having a stricter standard for yourself than others. That you have a capacity, like, here's what I'm after. Just a basic capacity to know my own problems. And not to try to offboard those. Like, I don't want to talk about those. I know that maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, I've got some. well, nobody's perfect. That's what we say, right? Nobody's perfect. Well, what's not perfect about you? Can you answer that question? I don't want to hear nobody's perfect. I want to hear you. Where are you? Struggling. Where are you weak? And do you have the skills to know the answer to that question? You ought to be able to know your weaknesses. There's a lot of people that can't do that. Do you know how to see your faults? It's not obvious. You know... It requires a mirror to see my nose. There are parts of me that cause some, that I, that I need some reflection to be able to see. They're not readily apparent to me. And if I never look at a mirror, for all I know, I don't even have a nose. It's not obvious to me, except for when I put my glasses on. But I don't see it, is my point. It might, it's there. No doubt, but I don't see it. And, and I want us, of all people, I want us to be able to see our own faults. Because if we're going to start small, that's where it has to start. We all have to be people who work on us, on ourselves. 
that I'm more preoccupied with finding my own faults and addressing those needs than yours. And it's like a marriage. You know how there's either, there's either a virtuous or a vicious cycle in a marriage. You're either building each other up or tearing each other down. And there's not a whole lot of in between. Neutrality is usually losing ground. You're either building each other up or tearing each other down. And you're in a virtuous or a vicious cycle. And what you find as you walk in marriage with someone you love is that if I put her ahead of me and she puts me ahead of her, we both excel far faster than if I was after me and she was after her. If she's trying to serve her interests and I'm trying to serve my interests, it's counterproductive. We tear each other down. But if I try to serve her interests and she tries to serve my interests, it's just the, it's the way that God made us to be in marriage. It's a, it's a necessary way to, be, to have a successful marriage. And that, that, that same kind of principle applies into how we use criticism and critique, is that if every one of us has a stricter standard for self than other, then we're not always shooting each other and pulling each other down and trying to, trying to cut at one another. There's a grace that comes from that, right? There's a grace, there's a humility, and there's a, there's a, there's a camaraderie. Like when you really are dealing with you, it's much easier to be gracious with him, with her. Because then you say, well, you don't say, Nobody's perfect. That would, be an, that would be a big picture idea, right? Nobody's perfect. That would be a perfect example of an exterior view. The big mass of humanity all has problems. Well, what, what does that mean? That doesn't, that, that doesn't affect me, like, except for an aggregate. It's an entirely different proposition to say, I am this. And because I am this, I can appreciate that your flaws too. And then we can create support and care for one another. Okay, so can you see your faults? The other way to think about this is when you see your faults, can you ask people for help? Can you bring people into that? Can you bring people close? Can you bring them near? I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling with that, and I have such a hard time with this. Can you help me? I know these things about myself. I know I struggle here, here, and here. When you see those things, brother, when you see those things, sister, can you, can you help me? That's self-critique. And, you know, one of the things that goes along with this capacity, one of the tips for this skill is to know well who your old man was. People who know their old man, people who know their sin, people who know what they were capable of all on their own. It's not hard to know your problems.
The next thing that I, I think you should focus on is to be able to answer this question. What does uh, my spouse or children really think? about my weaknesses. I don't want this all to be weakness focused, but it's a, there's other versions of that, but it's a good way, it's a good test, it's a good analysis. What, what, what does, here's why I bring this up. I would say the most, hmm, I've, I think I've said it before, I think the most difficult times for me, in my marriage, have been when Erica is telling me something that I know is true and I don't want to hear. Because, like, nobody can cut to the quick like that. Because you can't fight it. You can't deny it. You can't, you can't, they, they live with you. They know you. When my wife or my children is dealing with my faults in ways that I don't, I'm not ready or eager to hear about are the, are the most difficult places. Those times when you feel that temptation, when you feel that desire, when you feel that drive to, oh yeah, well, what about you? Oh yeah, well, or all these things. And you create all, you know, there's all these mechanisms, right? There's all these mechanisms in a person's life, all these manipulations, all these ways to tweak the environment to make sure that you provide some little space of immunity from that, from that criticism, from that scrutiny. There's these little ways that we make ourselves impenetrable and untouchable from those things. Uh, let's, just, let's just talk about them. Anger. Silence, yelling, bitterness, you know sometimes it can make people bitter to tell them what's wrong. All kinds of emotional manipulation happen in people's homes with their children, with their spouses. And the main point to that is to create a space where you won't mess with me. There's something that you're trying to get to and I don't want you to get there. I don't want to recognize that about me. I don't want to face it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know it. And so I create all these reactions And sometimes this, this it, it, shows, it shows up in relationships um, that are like, when this stuff is inside the home, what's outside the home, this is a, I, I don't know if it's,
purely a Christian phenomenon, I wouldn't say that, but it's particularly a Christian phenomenon. When stuff is bad like this inside, outside it becomes like these performative things. Like some, some desire to perform in public to hide this in private. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've had that experience, but sometimes you meet people and they're so, they're so saccharine, so artificially sweet in their relationships. You're like, ew, I don't know, something's going on there. That ain't natural. Kind of kissy face, and ooh, you know. Or, or hyper submission or hyper obedience or these kinds of things. Those are masks for something not working well inside. But, but if I ask you right now, the, the, the family members that are closest to you, what, what do they think? Okay, so we did this, right? What do you think about you? That's hard. Now, take the people, the family members that are closest to you. What's their list for you? What do they think? If you know that, that says something about your relationship with those people. It means at least you're not hiding from it, right? If you can answer that question. Let me say another thing about this. If you don't, if you don't interact with, with with your family in this level, if you don't have a place for, for constructive conflict within your home, if you don't have pathways to address and speak to each other about these kinds of issues, you, guess what? They still think these things. Your family knows your stuff. And you can either ignore that and use these kinds of manipulations so that you don't have to deal with that, so that you can keep reputation or prestige or whatever, or just, or just ignorance. That's, that's its own motivator. But they still know who you are. And if you don't have opportunities and avenues within the framework of your home to address these things, to bring them up with one another, to have space where your children can tell you what they think is wrong. That's something that children are supposed to be able to do. I have a problem. There sh we, should, we should be able to create environments where they, can, where they can air those things. Without disrespect, without rebellion, without disobedience, but honest communication. And we create that, we create that as parents, we create that as, as people in a family when we're honest with our failures and put them and don't try to hide behind them. When you mess up and you can come to your family and say, I messed up and here's what I did and I'm sorry that it hurt you, I'm sorry that I was loud, I'm sorry that I wasn't 
I wasn't patient with you, I'm sorry, I wasn't kind with you, I'm sorry, whatever the case is, and you bring that to your family, that creates space, and then you, and then you, it's your job to fix it, right? It's, if you do that to your family, it's your job to fix it. So you come and you make an apology. You say, here's what happened, here's, here's what I did wrong, here's what I want to make right. How do you feel about that? That's a part that a lot of people miss. How do you feel about that? What do you have to say about it? How did that make you feel? How can I make it better? That's how you get to this stuff. And that's how when your children grow, they have the space as you become, now you're out of the phase of little children, you're training them, now you have teenage and adult children who can come to you and say, hey, Pop, what's going on, man? Like, what? That's, that wasn't good. Don't you want that? I know that sounds hard. That's the best thing. When you're, when you're grown and near-grown children trust you enough to say, I have a problem with that. I don't like that that happened. It seemed like something was wrong. Can we talk about it? Those are signs of health, and they're the thing that we try to avoid our whole life long. They're the signs of health, and over and over we try to avoid them. We try to stuff that stuff and get rid of it. I don't want, you're not supposed to talk to me that way. When it comes to the community, okay, so your self-criticism, your family, this is the way I ask this question. What are the terms? of your submission. To the community. The community where you live, the community that you're a part of, what are the terms? Oh, it begs the question, are you submitted to the community that you're a part of? Like, I guess that's step one. Do you know that that's what that's a relationship that you're supposed to be in with your community is one of submission. Let's presume that that's the case. I trust that we all know that. What are the terms of that submission? How does that play itself out in your life? Where are the places where you yield? Where are the places where you hear? Where are the places where you offer up to your community? Here's some symptoms. Are you searchingly honest and painfully raw at your communion table? That's a vital question in our communities. Are you searchingly honest when you come to the Lord's table? Because, because that's a moment, that's a moment every week that all of us go through where you're either going to gloss over or dig in. You're either going to skip it or focus on it. And if you're, if you're, if you're focusing on it, if you're focusing on the things that need to be better, if you're being real with, with where you're at, 
then there should be times when it hurts to be at the table. It hurts to be raw. It hurts to disclose. It's not normal to open up your life to people. It's, we, everything about the world we live in wants to callous and harden and shell over who I am. I keep that stuff buried way down inside. And there's a thousand ways that you do that. But you, you, you gloss over or you're ignorant or you, or you transfer or you justify or you do all these things and they're so easy to do that you have to purposefully searchingly stop before the table and say, what's real? Like, what's the real me? What am I really dealing with this week? Who am I? Who have I been? What am I bringing to the table? And and there are times at our tables in our communities, and I've been there before, I know it happens, and I think all of us do, there are times when, I don't know for what, I don't know because there's tension in the air, or because there's difficulties, or because we're avoiding, or because of what, but there are times when that space for the church of Jesus Christ at his table becomes like an accounting of what I did this week, and my calendar, and my schedule, and my events, and nobody can cares about that. That's not why we're there. We're there to be real. We're there to talk about the things that matter. We're there to get to the heart of things and we're there to be bare in front of Jesus at his table and take that seriously. And if those, if those things aren't happening, and listen, it's not every week. I don't, I don't, I'm kind of a holiness guy. Like, I believe in victory. I, believe that, I don't believe we have to live in sin all the time. Like, I'm all about victory. There's victory in Jesus. You can overcome things in your life. Hallelujah, praise God, amen. There are victories to be won, but there are also times when you've got to be honest with the fact that you're not walking in victory. And if there aren't some marked, marked times in your life from time to time, from season to season, when you're just having to lay it out on the table and tell your brothers and sisters you blew it and you messed up and things aren't going well and cry a little bit at the table, then you're not getting the light inside that needs to be in there to heal that stuff up. That's how communion works. Another way to think about your terms of submission to the community is how you view your sin in terms of the community. When you fail, when you sin, do you see that just as your own personal situation? Do you see that just as your own consequences for your own life? Or do you see that? Do you read that sin and that failure in terms of the effect that it has upon your community? And not just your local community, but the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be the new humanity. We are supposed to be the society of Jesus. We are supposed to be the holy ones. We are supposed to be the ones that are living according to the teachings of Jesus. And we find within our midst strives and envyings and backbiting and problems and dishonesty and variance. And when those things are present... 
It's not just a you problem, it's an us problem. And it's not just an us problem, it's a Jesus problem. We are the body of Christ. And sin is a schism and a fissure and a wound on the body of Christ. And if left untended, it's a cancer. And that's the terms in which we deal with our sin in the, in, in the community. And, and for us, I think it's also important to see our, our congregations, not just ourselves, but our congregations. So I see myself in terms of my congregation. I see my congregation in terms of the church. It's not just Oakland and Oakland stuff. It's not just East Boston, East Boston stuff. It's not just Bartland, Bartland stuff. It's not just Malden Towers and Malden Towers stuff. It's not just Brackenberry and Brackenberry stuff. It's a church in Boston. We are the church together. And we affect one another. And God forbid if there's, if like the same way that we can have those things individually, we can have those variances and strives and envyings, we can have those things corporately with each other too. And God forbid that that's the case. That changes a lesion into a rash. And then the last, oh man, sorry. If, if, we, if we work through this progression, out here, there's a place where you can, where you can appreciate and evaluate external ideas. From this place of security and strength and, 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 and character, now you can look out into the broader world and you can see, hey, there's, there's utility in this. There's, there's people who are in different ideologies, different worldviews, different, different frames of being who have something to contribute. Like, it's not a threat to recognize good things outside of our group. However near or far that is. I, I, for me, brothers and sisters, for me, this, this is what accountability is. This is what matters to me. If, if we want to talk about accountability, this is the parameters that I want to live in. If I can get this out of me, out of my family, out of my community, out of my church, if we can do this, some people ask me from time to time, I have conversations with people and they say, well, Matthew, what do you think about the Lord's high priestly prayer? It's a really important thing. 
He said, I would that they would be one, even as I and the Father are one. And that's something that's deep in Jesus' heart, and it matters a lot. And all of us should care about it. And I think, I think that the parameters of that conversation are, are probably too small rather than too big. When he said that they would be one as I and the Father are one, I don't think that just means... I think that the ultimate goal of that is the whole creation. The new eschaton. The setting of all things right. How do, we, how, how do I think about that? What, what does that mean to you, Matthew? How do you wrestle with all of the disagreement and all of the differences and all of the contentions and problems and differences of ideas? And take your pick. There's a million versions of that. People with the same ideas that can't get along. People with different ideas that can get along. Every, every, every shade and, 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 and spectrum of that. I don't know. I, I mean, quite frankly, I don't know. I, do, I don't know how to make peace in the world. I don't know, how to make, don't know how to make peace in the church, quite frankly. How do I reconcile with brothers and sisters in the faith who are in the Roman Catholic Church or the wherever? Take your pick. Because I believe they're there. How, how, do I, how do I deal with a world where that's the case? Here's how I deal with the world. I don't know the answer to that question, but here's how I deal with that world. I want to start small. I want to start right here. And, and the answer that I provide to that question every time I'm asked is, I don't know the answer, but I know the way to the answer is for us to create unity with the people that are closest to us. That's, that's where we develop the skills and the abilities to move out into a broader world with the capacity to make ever-increasing peace in the church and in the world. And so I don't know what other people are going to do with that dilemma. But I know what I'm going to do is focus on the things where I am. Focus on the people. Focus on me and my responses and my way that I deal with conflict. I'm going to focus on my family and raising my children to care about the things that God cares about. I'm going to focus on my community and being honest and engaged and real with the people that are closest to me. And I believe by faith that that's where you develop the skills to make real peace in the church and the world. That's what I believe. Okay, I think we'll way over time probably. Nine fifteen. I, I appreciate you all. Hey, uh, that sounds trite when I say it that way. I love you all. I really love our people. I love our church. I love who we are. I love what God's doing with us. 
I love your life and your commitment to the kingdom and the gospel. I love being in a place where when I look around, when we're all together, and I know there's many of us that aren't here, but when I look around and I stand up here and I look out on our people, I see those people love God. In marked ways, they've affected their lives and they've moved their lives and they've committed themselves to be faithful to God. And I don't take that lightly. And I highly value the things that I have here with you all. And I want you all to remember, I want you to remember what it is that we have and be faithful to it. Thank you.